Let's pray. Father, I pray for two kinds of things. The, the technology, we just pray that you just get it out of our way in the sense that we don't think about it much. We're thankful for it. We're thankful for these folks who are experts in what they're doing. And we pray that you would put your hand on it and make it work so that undistracting excellence could mark what we're doing. But mainly, Lord, we pray that truth would hold sway in this session. Give me a big portion of your Holy Spirit. I'm encouraged by the words of Jesus that which of you who has a son who asks him for a loaf of bread would give him a stone, or if he asked him for an egg, would give him a scorpion. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And so I'm asking for the Holy Spirit to come because you're a good Father. You won't give us a scorpion or a stone or a snake. May the Holy Spirit awaken understanding in those who hear and clarity and faithfulness in me. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm deeply thankful that God has put it in the heart of Brad Nelson to conceive of this series on growing a heart for the nations and that I get the chance to kick it off here and we'll just do this through the fall from different angles. Now, as I reflected on what I want to say it occurred to me that the older I get, the clearer it becomes to me that human beings by nature don't draw the same conclusions that God does from many facts. And we don't feel the same way God does about the conclusions that he draws from the facts. What I mean by human nature is uh, phrases like, by nature we are children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. By nature, there's something wrong with us. We don't just do bad things. We, we have a, a nature, a mind, an attitude, a bent that thinks badly about many things. We might be able to say that two plus two is four, but then we do terrible things with that ability. Or if he says something strange, we don't like it. So there's something wrong with us. When God draws conclusions from things that look strange to us, we get it in his face and we disagree with him and call him into question. Or another text would be 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 13, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit because they are foolishness to him. So we by nature regard lots of things that are true as foolish. Now, the older I get, the more I see evidences of this in, in me and in Christians and the way we read our Bibles and the way we respond to providences. Now, an example of this that's moving me into this issue of missions is in order for us to have a heart for the nations, a heart for the unreached, close and distant individuals and ethnic groups, in order for us to have a, a heart for the nations that is strong enough, deep enough, durable enough, God-centered enough, Christ-exalting enough to be the kind of mind it should be, we need to base this heart for the nations on the same thing God bases his heart for the nations on. Now, so far, I don't think our thoughts would be different than God's thoughts. You know the text, Isaiah 55, 8, your thoughts are not my thoughts, your ways are not my ways. And that's because the mind of the flesh is at enmity with God, and we think all kinds of things that God doesn't think. It doesn't mean that he can't and we can't think the same thought as unbelievers, like the earth is round instead of square. 
It means there are many facts from which God draws conclusions. We don't draw the same conclusions. And he feels about them ways we don't feel. But so far in that little analogy, uh, we're okay. We're thinking God's thoughts. So far we're saying in us, in order for us to have the kind of heart for the nations that is durable enough and strong enough and deep enough and Christ-exalting enough and God-centered enough in order to be what it ought to be, we need to base that mind for the nations, heart for the nations, on the same thing God does. So far, we're thinking like God, if you're there. But when we see what God bases his heart for the nations on, there's a lot of backs that get up. Because what God bases his heart for the nations on is his passion for his own name and his own glory. And I go all over the country and the world saying this, and I watch the reactions, I field the questions, and I have discovered for about 30 years now that this thought is alien to many believers not to mention unbelievers, that God would be jealous for his name and on the basis of that be given to pursue the nations and their salvation and their judgment in the measure that he decides. So, since that is so alien to us, what I do every year, and I'm getting a chance to do it here now, I do it for the insight students, I do it for the perspectives classes, I do it wherever I get a chance, is to build my case that God bases his heart for the nations on his heart for himself. And in doing that, I try to lay out texts, because what John Piper thinks is of no consequence whatsoever if it doesn't correspond to biblical truth. So the only thing you should care about in this next 45 minutes or so, as far as my talking goes, is does what he says correspond to what the Bible teaches? That's all that matters. My authority as a pastor isn't what counts. My being older than most of you isn't what counts. My having a certain degree of education is not what counts. What counts is, does this man get under the Bible instead of over the Bible? Does he submit and then talk plainly about what he finds here in such a way that ordinary folks can say, yep, that must be what it says and what it means, because there it is. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to take as many texts as we can fit into the time frame I've got here to argue that God's heart for the nations is built on God's heart for God. God's zeal to reach the nations with the glory of his son and save sinners is built on his zeal that his name be exalted. That's the argument. And the way to argue for it, I think, is to simply look at a, an array of texts that show that God does everything for the sake of magnifying his glory. So here's my thesis. Perspectives, this is where I usually give this talk. God's ultimate goal in creation and redemption is to uphold and display his glory for the enjoyment of his redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So the main thing is here, this is God's ultimate goal. And it happens to be for the enjoyment of his redeemed people. And those people in God's design happen to be from every people and tribe and tongue and nations. Oh, how I would love to spend another hour making the case that this diversity, this cultural and ethnic and racial diversity here is essential to this. God did not make us as different as we are 
culturally, ethnically, racially for nothing. It's not an accident. It's not a punishment after the Tower of Babel. This is because a diverse song sung to the Redeemer is more glorifying to the Redeemer than a union song. If we all sang one note from one culture, from one ethnicity, from one race, it would have a loud and glorious sound. But oh, it would not look or sound like the song that will be sung to the Redeemer from such diversity as he is winning it from. But that's another talk. There it is. His main ultimate goal is to uphold and display his glory. That's the seemingly offensive thing to many people. It just sounds so self-centered, self-exalting, and that feels bad to people. The key, I don't know if I'm going to get to this at the end, so I'll say it now. The key to why God's self-exaltation, that is the pursuit of the magnifying of his own glory, is not vicious, but virtuous, not unloving, but loving, is this word right here. Enjoyment. He's doing it for the enjoyment of his people. If God did not preserve and exalt his glory, you would not be given the very thing that you were designed to be most satisfied by. Namely God and God's glory. He's the one being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue and the greatest act of love. When you stand in front of God, if you're thinking God's thoughts and not the world's thoughts, because the world, when they stand in front of God, they want God to say, I like you, you're nice, you're great, that's why I saved you. We don't want that because we know we're not great and we're not nice. What we want is for God to say, Okay, stand in front of me and watch this and then be God in his fullness of grace and justice so that we can spend an eternity enjoying that, going deeper into that. I just read in my devotions this morning in Isaiah. Did I save it on a piece of paper? I think God did. I do this because my memory's getting worse. Isaiah 28, 5. In that day... The Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty for his remnant. I just, I I spent 15 minutes on that sentence. And I just asked, what will it mean that he will be a crown of glory? Whose head will it be on? He's the crown. He's not the head. It's going to be on your head. Take a deep breath. He will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty. In other words, he will satisfy every longing for glory, beauty, everything good that you ever long for will be satisfied in him. Therefore, it is loving for him to lift himself up and say, here I am, world, admire. If you did that, you would be unloving because you're not satisfying. He is. You should simply go all over the world pointing to him and saying, world, look. Look at Christ especially because there, more than anywhere else, when Christ died, the glory of the grace of God was magnified, which is the apex of all his glory, which is why Christ is the center of everything. Okay. So now I I said we should go through the Bible and look at text. So here they come, and we'll just, I'll watch my clock, and when we get to the stopping point, I will stop and see if there's some questions for those last 10 minutes. So if I get carried away, somebody holler at me from the the clock. We're all right. Um, I don't choose this for theological reasons. I am a lover of this doctrine predestination. I choose it because it's chronologically first in the universe. No, first in reality, (laughs) before the universe. Predestination. So just look at Ephesians. This is Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. I'm not going to read all of it, just the first few 
verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. There's election. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's when it happens. You were chosen. If you're a Christian before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. So there's the second doctrine. First is choosing. Second is giving a destiny to those he's chosen. He predestined us for adoption. Now watch this carefully. He predestined us for adoption. Be in his family. Even though we were aliens and rebels. Be in his family through Jesus Christ. So this came through the saving work of Christ. According to the purpose. So what's his purpose? Purpose of his will, this, this predestining of us to adoption through Jesus accords with a purpose. And what's the purpose? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Now paraphrase that. God, before the foundation of the world, set his heart on being praised. Got it? Am I, am, I, am I adding to the text when I say it that way? I know that's a paraphrase. Because this is the ultimate thing. These are means. Choosing is means. Predestining is a means. Adoption is a means. Jesus was a means at this point. And the goal is, the purpose is, that we praise the glory of his grace, which was supremely manifested in Jesus, which was planned before the foundation of the world. So there's my first argument. From the beginning in God, before we existed, God's design was to get praise for his glorious grace. I'd love to just stop here and see if there's a question, but I don't know if it'll work that way. So if you have a question, if you think I'm missing something there of distorting this text, go to Dan or go to Brad and, and ask me later. So that's argument number one, I'm just going to go in chronological order here. Next thing on my chronology is creation. Then God said, let us, this is Genesis 1, 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. There's the key I'm going to pick up on. God created man in his own image. What does that mean? In the image of God, he created them, male and female, equally in God's image, he created them. Okay. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Books by the <laughs> hundreds have been written on the Imago Dei, as it's called, it's a huge issue. Is it reason? Is it emotion? Is it that we walk erect? Is it that we have moral accountability? How are we like God? And I'm just going to avoid the whole controversy and say something much simpler and I think just as profound. Images are created to image. Right? Why do you ever set up an image of anything to image it? You put up a, a, uh, a statue of Stalin. You want people to look at Stalin and think about Stalin. You put up a statue of George Washington. Look at it and think about the founding father and something great and, or whatever. Images are made to Image. And so, if God made us, unlike all the other animals, in his image, wh whatever it means in detail, this it means clearly. I think it's clear. Images are created to set forth the reality. God's the reality. And we're the image. Now, what does that mean? I mean, just paraphrase that now in terms of my concern. My concern is, why did God create man? And the answer becomes, to show God. That's why. He created little images so that they would talk and 
act and feel in a way that reveals the way God is. So people would look at the way you behave, look at the way you think, the way you feel, and say, God must be great. God must be real. That is why you exist. So God didn't create you as an end in yourself. He's the end. You're the means. And the reason that's such good news is because the best way to show that God is infinitely valuable is to be supremely happy in him. If God's people are bored with God, they are really bad images. Bad, bad, bad. God is not unhappy about himself. He is infinitely excited about his own glory. That's why the son received the words, you are my beloved son. With you, I am. Now, this, we just, we take this word well pleased, say, he's okay with Jesus. <laughs> he's not just okay with Jesus. He is absolutely thrilled with Jesus as the image of himself. And so, if we go about the world making our choices in what we watch on television, do on computer, the way we handle money, the way we handle food, so that it communicates to the world these things are our treasure rather than God, these things make us satisfied rather than God, he's getting a bad press. And we're not doing what we were created to do. We were created to image God. So God predestined for his glory. He created for the display of his glory. I'm going to skip the Tower of Babel. I'm going to skip the call of Abraham. I'm going to go to the Exodus. I'm staying in chronological order here. This is uh, Ezekiel 20, verses 5 through 9. We'll, we'll look at something in Exodus itself in a minute, but Ezekiel theologically reflects on the Exodus in a certain way that I'm very interested in. Thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the seed of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt. We're now we're in Egypt. I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things from your eyes, feast on uh, every one of you, I'm sorry, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God, but they rebelled against me and would not listen to me. They did not every man cast away the detestable things uh, their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I thought I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But he didn't do that. Why didn't he? But I acted for the sake of my name. That it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they dwelt in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. Now, right here, we begin to see something that's going to climax in the cross of Christ. Namely, that the ground of the deliverance of a rebellious people is God's jealousy for his name. If God, at this point, had not been supremely jealous for his name, Wrath would have fallen upon the people of Israel. That's what it says. I thought I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. That's what they deserved. Something checked that just disposition in God. And it was, I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profane in the sight of the nations among whom they dwelt and in whose sight I made myself known. So get that principle. There, there are so many Christians today 
who see the salvation of God as an evidence of their worth instead of God's worth. It won't work here. It just won't work. When, when they walk through the sea on dry land, what should they say? We must be really good. They deserved wrath, and they got deliverance because God is really great and meant to be known as great. Now, here's the way Psalms put it. Psalm 106, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider thy wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of thy steadfast love, but rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea. Yet, he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. When we sing of our salvation, which we do every Sunday, oh, how thankful I am for worship leaders who get this. Are constantly saying, we're going to glory in our Redeemer. We're not going to glory in the fact that he saved me must mean I'm glorious. We're not going to talk like that. That doesn't satisfy the soul. That's the carnal mind using the cross to buttress its ego. And there are many people that do that. The cross crucifies the ego and puts all worth on Jesus and the Father. Now here's Exodus itself, the, the book itself. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians will know. I will get glory over Pharaoh. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh, the one who is. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh and his chariots. That's really strong language. God, I don't know if you've ever asked why God used ten plagues to deliver Israel from Egypt instead of one. And you might think, if you thought like the world, well, he did his best for nine, and then he really pulled the trump card at ten, and, and it worked. That's not the case, because we read already at the beginning of the story that he was going to multiply his signs in Egypt. He didn't start with one and hoped it worked, and then go to two and hoped it worked, and go to three and hoped it worked, and finally ten works, and he says, I don't know how long this might have lasted. That's totally foreign to the context. God planned to multiply his signs in Egypt. Why? Because he meant to get glory over this rascal Pharaoh who was so against God. He meant to magnify himself so, the exodus, which is a pointer to our exodus from sin, was based upon God's zeal for his name. This is a huge event in redemptive history, is it not? A few months later, after the exodus, the giving of the law, Exodus 20, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Have no gods before me because I'm jealous. What does jealous mean there? There's some jealousy that's bad, and there's some jealousy that's good. I just did some premarital counseling yesterday, and I 
looked at some personality things that I saw, and I, I queried them about how he would feel if she hung out with her girlfriends after they were married, and he with his boyfriends and, and other things. And I probed. I, just, I was scratching for unhealthy jealousy. You're mine. You be home every night. You give everything to me. Now, that, that would be an unhealthy jealousy. However, there's a very healthy jealousy. If Noelle decides she's interested in another guy, she goes, starts hanging out long hours at Starbucks with some guy, having deep conversations about her heart, and gets farther and farther from my heart. I should be really angry. She's here. And God's really angry when we hang out in inappropriate ways with the world. Why? Because we're designed to bestow all the glory on him. To get our deepest and most profound satisfaction from him. He is intending to say in the law, I'm number one. Period. And you'll be destroyed if you don't agree. See, I kind of talk, that just really turns people off, right? <laughs> you need to say it like that just to wake some people up to how carnal they are. How self-centered they are. That's the law. They wandered in the wilderness a long time. Why? Why did he spare them? I mean, these were really, really rebellious folks like us. The children rebelled against me. This is Ezekiel 20 again. They rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes and were not careful to observe my ordinances by whose observance man shall live. They profane my Sabbath. They, uh, then I thought I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them. But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name. We've seen that before. It happens over and over again in the history of Israel. I'm skipping the conquest of Canaan. This one I love. I won't skip. I love this because it is so full of gospel before the gospel. We saw the gospel in the Exodus that the salvation of a rebellious people was rooted not in their worth, but in God's worth. And here goes, see it again. Watch this. The people have asked to have a king like the nations, and Samuel's not happy about that, and God's angry about that. So what happens? All the people, this is 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 12, 19 to 23. All the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added all to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Okay, it was sin. It was terrible sin to do what they did. Samuel said to the people, fear not. You have done all this evil. And I remember, I don't remember how many years ago it was, but I, there was a point when I read this and I thought, that is a very strange connection. The connection between fear not, there, fear not, and you have done all this evil is really weird. It should be fear, you have done all this evil. Fear, you've done all this evil. But it says, fear not, you have done all this evil. That's gospel. That's what I mean by gospel. This is undeserved grace, undeserved mercy. Why? What, what's, what's the basis of it? Fear not, you have done all this evil. Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn aside after vain things which cannot profit or save, for they are vain. For the Lord will not, here it comes, the Lord will not cast away his people. Why? For his great name's sake. So Exodus 
the people were delivered and not shown wrath because God was jealous for his name in Egypt. Here, the people have committed treason and uh, impeached God and said, we want another kind of king. We won't be like the nations. We don't like this theocracy business. We want another king. And they called it sin when Samuel preached to them and said, but don't be afraid. And he could have said, God is merciful. God is gracious. God keeps covenant love. He could have said all those things, and they'd be true. But what he said was, the Lord will not cast away his people for his great namesake. I wonder, let me just put this on the ground for a minute, how you pray in response to that. I remember back in Fuller, Noel, you may remember this. My, my, my world was being blown to smithereens in, in the fall of, uh, in spring of, of uh, 69 and then the next year. It's just, you have to go through Copernican revolutions. You have, to, you have to have all the stars come crashing down in order to rebuild your world when, when you've been man-centered all your life. And I said to Noel, we'd just gotten married in December 68, and so she's walking through this with me. And I said to her one evening, we had this beige couch in the living room of that little back house on Orange Grove Boulevard. And uh, paid 85 bucks a month for that house, whole house. And we knelt there as a, cu- a young couple. We knelt nightly and prayed. And I said, you know, you can tell when somebody's theology is being turned upside down by the way they pray. Because we just were praying different. Texts like, hallowed be thy name, were just exploding. That wasn't a throwaway phrase anymore. Hallowed be your name was a request to God to make himself strong in the world and great in our hearts. And so I'm asking you, how does your discovery of God affect your praying? Well, here's one way. Psalm 25, 11. For thy namesake, O Lord, Pardon my guilt, for it is great. You pray that way? Does that kind of thinking come to your mind? Well, probably not. It sure didn't come to my mind unless you had been, had your eyes open to texts, hundreds of them, like I'm showing you now. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. Now, You know, you really do say this. You just say it in other words. You say, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Because that's the name. On this side of the cross, we know the name. It's Jesus. God has put his son forward to exalt his own righteousness and preserve his own justice in the saving of sinners so that when we call down mercy totally undeserved, who are we going to appeal to, ourselves? I I I can't even feel in the morning when I pray like, Lord, forgive me, because I'm, what can you even finish there? Like, I'm better, I'm good, or 99% of the time, or 1%, or nothing works. One thing works for your namesake, O Lord. Make your name great in forgiving my sins and using me broken and imperfect as I am. Or he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Why does he, why does he sanctify you? How do you pray for sanctification? Lord, lead me in paths of righteousness for your namesake today. I want you to look great today. One more from the Old Testament, and then we'll go to the New Testament for a few minutes. I think just Ezekiel 36. I remember reading, give you a little autobiographical. We had a rocking chair that I bought for Noel when we had our first baby in Germany. 
Whatever happened to that rocking chair? We gave it away. Oh, we gave it to the we gave it to Karsten when he had a baby. So we had baby Karsten sat in the chair of baby Karsten, and then we gave the chair to Karsten when he had a baby. That's what we did. Okay, so cool chair. I think this is really neat to do that. So I sat in that chair every Sunday night. There were no Sunday evening events in Germany, and I read for about a year, maybe maybe not quite. The religious affections by Jonathan Edwards, two three pages a night. I don't know how, how many, but just, I could not take much of that book. It was absolutely convicting. I recommend it to everybody. People ask me, where should we start in reading Jonathan Edwards? I say, religious affections, not freedom of the will. That's heavy. I mean, really hard, but religious affections, you can handle that. I mean, you can handle it intellectually. You won't handle it morally. It'll wipe you out. This text jumped off the page in the chapter on evangelical humiliation which is actually the title. So here it goes. Therefore, say to the house of Israel. Now, this is Israel in exile, and they're there because of the judgment of God. What will become of them? That's the issue. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel. Now, this is putting the negative on the positive I've been stressing. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. It is not for your sake. That I will act, says the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your sins, O house of Israel. Wow. That, the reason that blew me away in 1972 is because I was surrounded by books on self-esteem. I wrote reviews of two of them for ET, J, Journal of Evangelical Theological Society. It was, it was red, hot gospel coming out of the world into the church in those days, the gospel of self-esteem. And as I read this, I said, none of those books would ever quote this text. They would never, ever, ever say, it is not for your sake I will act, says the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your sins, O house of Israel. There must be genuine, devastating brokenness before Leaping for joy at the cross. The cross first says, it's because of you that I'm here. That's what it says. And meaning, your sin is so horrible, it requires the death of the Son of God for God to be vindicated in the saving of your soul. And so it was just a, a missing emotional peace, I think, in completing, toward completing my life. Jesus. John 17, I glorified thee on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. So, in accomplishing the work that Jesus received from the Father, he was glorifying the Father. Or John seven eighteen, He who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. So God sent Jesus to get glory for God. God sent Jesus to get glory for God. That's why he sent him. Romans 15, 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The reason God sent Jesus to the Gentiles was so that they would glorify God for his mercy. 
Now, there are two things. Glorify God, bestow mercy. How do they relate? I have talked with a lot of uh, seminary students over the years who have been charged to write integration papers for their seminary experience, meaning put it all together in a paper. Choose the integrating ultimate reality and write a paper with your whole theology around that. And the ways divide in talking with people because they often choose this one, mercy. And it is infinitely glorious. And I wouldn't begrudge anybody writing a paper that integrates the whole Bible around mercy. Not a problem. But it's not the most ultimate thing. You can see it in the grammar. I mean, just look at the grammar. That the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. What does for mean there? A little preposition. Glorify God for his mercy. Wouldn't you paraphrase that? Glorify God on the basis of his mercy? That is, the experience of mercy prompts the glorifying of God for the mercy. And if that's the case, which I think it is, then it's the glorifying of God which is ultimate and the receiving of mercy is penultimate. But you don't have to choose. If we had to choose, there'd be no gospel. God gets the glory, we get the mercy, and that's the best of all possible worlds. I wouldn't want it any other way. The natural mind says, no, I really can't be happy unless I get the glory. And I don't like a God who doesn't need a little bit of mercy. You hear people talk about forgiving God. Got to watch my language when I hear things like that. This is the most important paragraph in the Bible, probably. (laughs) Dangerous to say things like that. But if I had to choose, it would be somewhere in Romans 8 or somewhere in Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, there it is. He sets up the issue in terms of glory. Because back in chapter 1, we have all exchanged the glory of God for images, especially the one in the mirror. So, Romans 1.23, we have exchanged the glory of God for images. And you get to Romans 3.23, and it says we have fallen short, which is literally we lack. And I think we lack because we have traded it for lesser things. We've turned away from it and embraced our favorite glory. All have sinned, and that's what sin is. Preferring another glory to God's glory is what sin is. I have sinned and fall, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They, have just, they are justified. This is how God justifies sinners. By his grace, as a gift, through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood, or propitiation, better, by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show, so here's the, here's the aim, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to prove that at the present time, he himself is righteous, and that he justifies him with faith in Jesus. So, God saves you through the horrible price of the death of his son because in saving you, he passes over sins and that's got to be vindicated. If God passes over sins in the Old Testament and in your life, if he just passes over sins, what does it look like? It looks like sins, which are defined as belittling the glory of God. It looks like his glory is of little value. So when he just, we'll just pass over David's murder and adultery. Let's pass over, which is what he did. 
The Lord has taken away your sin. Nathan said that to him right like that. Can you imagine Uriah's father or Bathsheba's mother saying, no way. You're not going to just, you're not just going to sweep this under the rug like that. He's got to pay. My son is dead. My daughter is raped. And you're saying, and the Lord took away his sin, blah, blah, blah. No way. That is not righteous. That is not justice. No judge can act like that and be righteous. That's what Paul's coming to terms with in this paragraph. How can God be righteous and forgive you just like that? Justify him who simply has faith in Jesus. And the answer is he killed his son to show how serious sin is. Bruised his son in order to magnify the worth of his glory. Which turns the Christian life now into the verse that my dad quoted to me more than any other, I think. So whether you eat or drink, Johnny, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So everything in in redemptive history has been God acting for his glory. Therefore, everything in your life is to join him in that purpose. The reason you're on the planet is to join God in making much of God. Every human being that you'll ever meet anywhere in the world, in any culture, according to Romans 5, is disobedient and rebellious and needs to be justified by faith alone. They've all stopped glorifying God for who he really is. And we go to call them back to glorify God. Every human is on the planet to do this. First Peter, how do you serve? I pray this more than any other text, I suppose, as we meet downstairs before the services. Whoever serves, let him serve in the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the dominion forever and ever. Amen. One last text and then we'll wrap it up and take some questions if you have any. Why is Jesus coming back? We're jumping all the way to the end now. Second coming. Second Thessalonians 1.9. They shall suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord. These are people who have not believed. And from the glory of his might, so they'll be excluded from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed. Because our testimony to you is believed. So if I give you a little quiz at the end of this course, which I won't. State from 2 Thessalonians 1, two reasons why the Son of God is returning to earth. Give me one. To be glorified. Give me another one. To be marveled at. Perhaps you're, you're answering more loudly up at the north, I don't know, or south. They're not answering loudly. I never thought that for the first 22 years of my life. Anybody ask me why Jesus is coming back? I say, come back to get me. Come back to save me. And that's true. It's just skewed. It's skewed. I I was ignorant. My mind, my mind was not the mind. My thoughts were not his thoughts. My my thoughts, speaking truth, was a skewed truth. It wasn't based on what God's thoughts are based on. The Son of God is coming to be glorified. And the reason that is love is because your joy at that moment will consist in making much of him. I and Rand the atheistic 
philosopher, novelist, said, I remember reading it in Atlas Shrugged, really moved me, a simple little sentence. She said, admiration is the rarest of pleasures. Now, in her mouth, that was absolutely scornful, meaning there aren't any admirable people in the world except me and a few philosopher business types. But, but in my mouth, that means I'm made. I am made, unlike all other animals, to admire. And my deepest joy will consist in admiring the most admirable. And there is only one who is most admirable. Christ, the image of God, fully. And when he comes, my fullest joy will consist in fulfilling the purpose for which he came, namely, to be admired. So his glory and my joy come together now. If you embrace the last 50 minutes or so, then when you talk about thou wast slain, and by thy blood didst ransom men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and hast made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. You know why he's doing that. Why Jesus came, why he bought people from every ethnic group, why we send out missionaries. And the answer from Romans 1 is for the sake of the name. So all of that simply to lay a foundation here at the beginning of this series that if we want our heart for the nation to rest upon God's heart for the nation, it should rest upon the basis of God's heart for the nation, namely God's heart for his own glory. Okay. 7.51. We have nine minutes. Where's my, where's my computer guy? I will go to the hands if, if we don't have anything from Brad. Okay, good. Going to put the comment from the North Campus up there. Ezekiel 29, I acted for the sake of my name. See also Micah 4, 5. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Micah 4, 5 is a life verse, and I want BBC to be encouraged if we live out Micah 4, 5, then we are right in line with what God is doing for the sake of his name. Well, that makes my job a lot easier. Thank you very much for the comment. That's beautiful. I had never made that connection. Micah 4, 5. Okay, we'll do, we'll do hands first. I'll repeat the question so you can know. The question is, a basic human instinct is for survival and enduring in life so that if we're threatened with hell, uh, we, we definitely want to cry out for a deliverance that we might be spared. Now, that's not a bad desire. I don't think the desire to live in pleasure for eternity rather than in misery for eternity is a wicked desire. It may become a wicked desire if what we anticipate giving worth to that existence isn't God. So th the question that was raised is, how do we move beyond a mere desire for preservation and desire to a superior satisfaction in God so that even if our Earthly, I don't think where earthly existence is called into question, we, we sacrifice. I, I think about this a, a lot. I, I, I remember when the man jumped, he broke the window on one, one of the high, high windows down at the IDS tower a few years ago, and he jumped out, and he died. It's not the guy who fell out and got amazingly spared, but this guy threw something through the window, and then he, and he jumped out to the absolute horror of the people in his office. And I, I wondered, 
I mean, immediately the situation I create in my mind is, would I risk fighting him on the, on the brink where he could take me over? Would I stand between him and the window and say, don't? There is somebody who cares about you. You may feel suicidal right now, but I'm here. I'm standing, and right there is a 26th floor drop. If you come at me, I'm dead, but I'm here because I care about you. What would I do it? And that, I, that's where the rubber meets the road in my asking, do I love this life more than I love the display of the worth of God. Now, if I, if I did that in the name of Jesus, what it would say loud and clear, I don't know whether the media would get it right, but what it would say loud and clear is he valued life with God in the next 10 seconds than life on the earth with his family. And he believed it. He really believed he was going to live forever. My answer to the how is uh, pray that God would change our hearts Psalm 90, verse 14, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad in you. In other words, don't satisfy me with money. Don't satisfy me with the praise of man. Don't satisfy me with health. Satisfy me with you. The psalmist prays for that kind of work on his heart. And secondly, since we're transformed into his image by beholding him, look for him in the word. Be in the word every day. Pull out your Bible several times a day and just say, Lord, show me something of yourself that would disincline me from the world and incline me from you so that I can enter back into the world as an alien and an exile with my treasure in heaven and therefore be of some use to the world instead of copying the world. So praying and being in the word and I think hanging out with the right people. Bad company corrupts good morals, 1 Corinthians 15. And good company rubs off on you. In those days of big change in my life in 1972, I was surrounded by people like what I'm talking about here, and they made all the difference. Read biography of saints who loved Christ more than life. And there are a lot of other things strategies, but it's a miracle. No one says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Question. The question is, is there no biblical category of saying we are worth something to God? Now, if you'd stopped right there, I would have answered one way, but you kept going and said, other than praisers of God. That makes it easy. No. <laughs> but back up, that's, that's big because Everybody in this room praises God from your personality, from your looks, from your culture, from your ethnicity, from, and that, that uh, refraction of the prism, of the light, of the glory of God shining into the prism of your humanity is unique. That adds a little something, I think, to your statement, other than praisers. Uh, I want to be significant, meaning I want to be used of God to make much of God. Paul said, I make it my ambition to make the name of Christ known where it's not known anywhere else. He had a passion and an ambition to do something with his life. But what does it boil down to? It boils down to making much of Jesus. But you can do that by the way you do diapers or clean house or, or program a computer, or fix a transmission, or suture up a surgery, or lay a brick. In other words, life is meant, whatever you do, whether you eat pizza or drink Diet Coke, do all to the glory of God. So I think my only worth consists ultimately in doing what will make that happen, being what will make that happen. Otherwise, if I, if I answered that question another way, like I'm going to have a little piece of worth over here different from how I reflect his worth, I think I'm an idolater. I think we 
we have plenty of significance, plenty of meaning, plenty of joy, plenty of worth. I mean, the biblical category would be in what? Matthew 10, somewhere around 28, where it says, are you not of much more value than, than these sparrows? Yeah, and that's what I'm, I'm answering. The, the value that you have that's different from sparrows is the capacity to image God. And therefore, <laughs> to want to make a case that you've got some independent worth than reflecting the infinite value of God would be a bad inclination, I think. 